welcome all of you who are uh, joining us online and also those of you uh, who are here at Central Campus. Along with those of you meeting together at our other um, campuses in Airdrie, uh, South Calgary, in Bridgeland, and also in Northwest Calgary. So, two weeks ago, I made a prediction that we would have nice weather for the next four to six weeks. So, how you been enjoying the weather so far? Yeah. Well, I'm uh, optimistic that with the exception of just the occasional rain, a little bit of snow here and there, uh, we're going to continue seeing this go for at least another two weeks, maybe four to six more weeks. Um, and just remember this, as you go and talk about your pastor becoming a meteorologist, um, that uh, you always add, he could be wrong. So just keep doing that. Anyways, we're continuing our series in the book of First John. And if you were here when I gave the introductory message to this book, you may recall that John wrote this letter somewhere between 40 to 50 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, which means that most of the people that John was writing to didn't hear or see Jesus in the flesh. They didn't witness the crucifixion, nor did they encounter the resurrected Christ. In other words, they were getting their information about Jesus secondhand from people who saw and heard Jesus in person. And consequently, this opened the door to false teaching infiltrating the church for speculation to begin to circulate. And soon some of the believers began to question what it meant to be a Christian, and even whether they, in fact, were Christians. And so in this letter, John spells out the characteristics of a true follower of Christ so that the believers in that day could know that they have eternal life. And toward that end, in this letter, John essentially gives three tests that reveal whether or not a person is a true follower of Christ. And the first test is, what do you believe about Christ? The second is, how are you living like Christ? And the third test is, how are you loving like Christ? Well, as we learned in the previous two messages in this series that I gave and also Pastor Ashwin, John addresses the first question in the first four verses of chapter 1. So that brings us now to verse 5, where he begins to address the second question. How are you living like Christ. So I'm going to invite you to stand and join me in reading our scripture lesson for today. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. 
But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Our Heavenly Father, again, thank you for inspiring John to write these words. We ask now that, Lord, you would do a work right within us. You would soften our hearts to receive what it is you want us to receive. You would focus our minds to hear and to understand what it is you want us to understand. And then, Lord, you would engage our will. You would give us the courage to do what you ask us to do. For we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Dallas Willard tells of a time that his three-year-old granddaughter, Larissa, was playing in their backyard. And it didn't take very long. And she discovered how to make mud in what she referred to as the warm chocolate factory. And soon she was covered with mud. And when her grandmother noticed the mess that she was in, she took her inside, she cleaned her up, changed her clothes, and told her not to do that again. Later that day, Larissa got bored. And it wasn't long, and she was back visiting the warm chocolate factory. And of course, in a matter of minutes, she was covered with mud again. When Larissa realized that she had been disobedient, she approached her grandma, who was facing the other way, reading a book in a lawn chair. And she said, Nana, don't look at me, okay? Don't look at me. And Dallas Willard goes on to say, even a little child shows us how much we want to hide when we do wrong how much we want to cover up our sin. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God in the garden, and then they tried to cover up and hide from God, we've all tried to do the same. A businessman checks into a hotel room. The hotel's policy is clearly stated in bold letters. The name of the movie that you rent will not appear on your statement. And as he reaches for the remote control, in his mind he whispers, don't look at me, God, okay? Here's a woman meeting together with some of her friends and the small talk evolves into a gripe session about their church or their small group or perhaps their work environment. And most of the evening is filled with cutting remarks and sarcasm and outright slander. And in the middle of it, she catches herself, realizes that what she's participating in. And in shame, she whispers to the Lord, don't, don't listen to us, okay, Lord? Just, just turn your face away. The reality is this may be one of the most common prayers that we pray, even though we may not even realize that we're praying it. Don't look at what I'm thinking right now, okay, God? Don't look at how I'm spending my money, okay, Lord? Don't look at the bitterness and the unforgiveness that's in my heart, okay, Lord? We sin. And we try to hide and cover ourselves. And frankly, it's one of the reasons that so many people are miserable these days. Dr. Steve Brown at Harvard Hospital has said the greatest area of counseling 
has been with people trying to deal with feelings of guilt and regret. So how do we deal with this guilt, this shame, this regret in our lives? Well, the Apostle John implies here there is a godly solution to this problem, and there's a human solution. Some people seek a human solution by denying that they have a sin problem at all. John refers to this in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, I'm always surprised when people would make that claim. Every time I line up at the airport and spend the better part of an hour making my way through, I say, how can people not believe or embrace the fact that people sin? Every time I have to fill out forms, or you have to fill out forms, they even volunteer in our church, police checks and all kinds of stuff. How can we not come to a place of understanding that we live in a world that is filled with sin and brokenness. Now notice he says here, if we claim to be without sin, not sins, but sin, singular. And what he's referring to here is not our sinful actions like lying and stealing, but our sinful nature, our predisposition to sin. King David refers to this in Psalm 51.5. He writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. John's referring to that inclination that we have to be the center of our universe, to play God. It's that part of us that believes that we know better, that insists in taking matters into our own hands and doing it our way. It's that prideful, independent spirit in us that wants to pursue something other than Jesus to satisfy that emptiness that we feel inside, which is really the heart of what sin is. Now, as I pointed out previously, John was confronting the false teaching of Gnosticism here, which is, was infiltrating the early church. Gnostics believed that Jesus was a good guy, but that he wasn't enough. Gnostic means knowledge. And so they believed that true salvation and freedom came through Jesus, yes, but, but it also needed to include more. It needed to include the continual pursuit of special knowledge and seeking special experiences. One of the great deceptions in our world today. Yes, Jesus is great, but I've got to have more. I've got to experience more when the scriptures make clear he's all we ever need. We just need to get closer to him. The Gnostics believe that you can reach a state of enlightenment, such a, a state of closeness to God, that your sinful nature, nature is eradicated and you're therefore incapable of sinning. And John exposes this falsehood in verse 8. He essentially says, you can deny that you have a sin problem. In fact, you can wipe the word sin right out of your vocabulary if you want. You can call your sins mistakes. You can call your sins failures or dysfunctions. Or anything else that you want, but unless and until you're willing to face your sin and call it what it is. 
and take ownership of it. You're deceiving no one but yourself, and the truth is not in you. And if the truth is not in you, you will not be set free from the guilt that's choking the joy right out of your life. Another way people attempt to deal with their guilt is to rationalize away their sin. Look at verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We make him out to a liar because he says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Gnostics also taught that the spirit is the only thing that matters. In other words, they believe that since our bodies are mortal and temporary, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Therefore, sexual immorality, gluttony, drunkenness, were perfectly okay because none of these affected your spirit as far as they were concerned. In short, they found a way to justify and to rationalize away their sin. Well, not much has changed since. People continue to find ways to justify their sin. Some people justify their sin by comparing their spiritual lives with other people. Well, I'm not as bad as that person, so I guess I'm okay. For example, Christians who are part of the emerging generation today often delight in exposing the shallowness of their Christian parents' generation many of whom gave their lives to achieving earthly success and pursuing the good life, building bigger homes, elaborate churches, and acquiring lots of Bible knowledge in those churches while neglecting their neighbors and the needs of the poor. And they have a point. However, even though the emerging generation may be engaging in social justice and what they consider to be more authentic, alive, and down-to-earth worship, many don't consider their lack of generosity, swearing and drinking and sexual immorality a big deal at all. In commenting on this, Brian Wilkerson says, I think the Apostle John would have had problems with the faith of both boomer Christians and the emerging hipster generation. As John points out in verse 6, we can't separate the spiritual from the material. We can't separate belief from behavior. Living in the light is as much about sexual purity as it is about social justice. Living in the light is as much about giving of our money as it is about giving of our time. It's about what we do with our bodies and not just what we do with our souls and our spirit. When John says God is light, he reminds the Gnostics and the early Christians that light isn't just about knowledge. It's about behavior. He says in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. If we claim to love God and yet mistreat our spouse or our children or those that we work with, we lie 
Truth is not just something we know, it is something we do. Walking in the light means we seek to align every area of our lives with God's precepts and principles, and not just some of the areas. And so some people try to rationalize away their guilt by comparing their spiritual life and their priorities with the life of others. Other people try to rationalize away their guilt by redefining morality. They justify their sin by insisting that their behavior isn't the problem. The standards are the problem. They believe the Bible is outdated. Or only parts of the Bible are true and relevant for us today. And that teachers like myself who hold the Bible in high regard are really inducers of false guilt. Now it's true that some teachers and churches are very legalistic, emphasizing rules and aspects of lifestyle that have no basis in Scripture. But as wrong and as harmful as that is and has been down through the years, it is equally wrong to conclude, therefore, that the moral standards that we find in the Scriptures are irrelevant. I mean, people roll their eyes and they say, oh, please, we're, we're no longer living in the Victorian era. I mean, this is the 21st century. Come on. And yet God's command, you shall not murder, is as relevant in the 21st century as it was in the first century. At least I hope it is. And so is stealing and lying and slander and greed and bitterness and adultery and sexual immorality and a host of other very clear principles and precepts that God has given. We need to remember that our God is a good God. He's not a sadistic God who gets his jollies from making our lives miserable. He has our best interests at heart in all things, and he never gives us a negative command without a positive purpose. You see, true guilt is our friend. It's not our enemy. Several years ago, Dr. Paul Brand, not Paul Brandt, our friend and country singer, but Paul Brand, who's a missionary doctor, medical doctor, used to work with lepers in India. And he discovered that one of the biggest problems that lepers have is that they always are seriously injuring their hands and their feet because they feel no pain. And Dr. Brand considers pain part of a brilliantly designed nervous system and one of God's most marvelous gifts to the human body. Well, in the same way that our nervous system is a gift from God, warning us of the danger or dangers to our physical body, so true guilt is a gift of God, warning us of dangers to our soul and our spirit. Real guilt is God-given, and it's a good thing. It serves as an alarm that you have injured your soul in some way. And that like cancer, you're going to begin to die a little bit each day unless you acknowledge it and you treat it. And so if a pastor quotes the Bible and speaks against stealing, and you feel guilty, don't blame the Bible or the pastor for the guilt that you feel inside. I mean, if you haven't stolen anything, you have no reason to feel guilty. 
If you have, then you've broken God's command given to you out of love to protect you. Which means the guilt you're feeling is a good thing. It's God's warning that you've injured your soul and your relationship with him and others. And you're headed in a harmful direction. Now again, John's not talking perfection here. I always have to emphasize that. He's talking about the direction that you're pursuing in your life. The direction that your heart, your life is moving and that it is aligned with the light, with Jesus Christ. Always, when you fail, you fall, you pick yourself up and you move and continue to walk toward him. In 2 Samuel 11, we find the story of King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, and how in a moment of weakness, he used his position of authority to summon and have an affair with Bathsheba. And when he discovered that she was pregnant, he tried to cover his tracks by having her husband Uriah killed in battle. And if you had known David personally and interacted with him at that time, you may have suspected something was a bit off, but if you had asked him if he was okay, he would have said, absolutely. I'm fine. Life is good. But if you had read David's journal in Psalm 32, you would have gotten a different story. This is what he wrote there. But what was going on inside of him? When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My strength sapped as in the heat of summer. Notice David says, when I kept silent. He does his best to stuff his sin and his regrets somewhere in the recesses of his mind. He keeps a stiff upper lip. And he tries to pretend that everything's okay. But the guilt inside of him is choking the life out of him. It's sapping the strength from his body. Many people seek human solutions before they turn to God. They attempt to deal with their guilt, their shame, and their regret by drinking it away, by partying it away, by working it away, by surfing it away on the net. Others move to new relationships, a new city, a new job, new house, new stuff. But we all know that parties end, that drugs wear off. New relationships, new jobs in time become ordinary. New things begin to rust and fade. And in the end, the pain is still there. Sin itself has a price. But when we try to deny it, when we blame others for it or justify it or rationalize it away, it takes a toll on us physically, emotionally, relationally, and also spiritually. There is no human cure for guilt and shame. But, says John, God has a solution. We can go to God and we can confess our sin to him. Look at verse 9. 
if we confess our sin. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. So what does it mean to confess our sin? Confession is not telling someone about our sin. People these days are quite open telling people about all they've done wrong. Confession is not explaining the story behind our sin. Genuine confession is to take ownership for our sin. No doubt circumstances may have played a part. No doubt other people may have played a part. But when I confess my sin, I'm acknowledging that somewhere along the way I made the decision to sin. It's not my toilet training. It's not my parents. It's not my spouse. It's not my boss. Or it's not even the devil who made me sin. It's me who sinned. When the prophet Nathan confronted David, David softened his heart. He repented of his sins to God and finally found the peace of God. And in Psalm 51, we find a record of David's prayer of confession. It's a beautiful psalm. Turn to it in your Bibles. Psalm 51. And in verse 3, David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. He didn't cover up. He didn't minimize his sin. He didn't say, you know, I made a mistake. Folks, mistakes are something that children make in math class. When I accidentally dial a wrong number, and I get you at 2 o'clock in the morning. That is a mistake. But that's what we often do. Rather than calling a sin what it is, and owning up to it, and realizing how destructive it is, we say, I, I made a mistake. But make no mistake. That is not true confession. When you confess your sins, you're agreeing with God about what you've done. It's like God's the umpire. He decides what's right and wrong, and you're agreeing with him. You're no longer arguing with him. You're agreeing with him. When David confesses his sin, he does not soften his guilt. He says, I did it. There is no way to be rid of true guilt apart from that kind of honest confession. Secondly, true confession acknowledges my sin against God. In verse 4, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now we know that David didn't just sin against God. He sinned against his wife, his own family. He sinned against Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, his generals, even the nation for betraying their trust. Sin always has consequences and often it hurts many others. And we need to feel that and we need to understand that if our confession is to be authentic. David wasn't denying this, that he had sinned against others. 
But he understood that in the final analysis, sin has only one victim, one target, and that's God. Because whether we acknowledge it or not, God is at the center of everything, including every relationship. In other words, when I hurt you, I hurt God. You keep that imagery in mind and it will forever change the way that you live your life. The way you treat your wife is the way you're treating God. The way you're treating your husband, your child, your parents, your boss, your employee, your neighbor, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, the way you treat the least of these is what Jesus said, is the way you're treating me. And so David gets to the root of the matter and he says, God, I know I've hurt all these other people. But I'm on my knees before you, pleading for your mercy and your grace because I have violated your holiness and your lordship. You see, church, feeling sorry for your sins, even to the point of weeping over them, isn't repentance. You may feel sorry for how your alcoholism, your drugs, your immorality, your abuse, or, or some other sin has affected other people. And that's all good feeling bad about that. But if you don't turn to God and you throw yourself on his mercy and embrace his grace, you won't find forgiveness. You see, we need to realize that Jesus didn't come to just provide a way for our sins to be forgiven. He rose from the grave to give us life, a new life in him. Jesus didn't just come and, and die to forgive us of our sins. He died and rose again so that we could move on from our sin and live in victory with him going forward. So hear me clearly. Repentance is not merely grieving over our sin and confessing it to God. It is turning away from that sin and turning to the one who can make it right. The one who can forgive us, cleanse us, and give us new life going forward. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is not forgetting. God can't forget like we can. He chooses to remember no more. But he can't forget. I mean, if God could forget, he would not have needed the cross. He could have just said, well, it doesn't matter. I've forgotten the sin. I've forgotten the injustice. Don't worry about it. Forgiving is not forgetting. Neither is forgiving excusing. No, forgiveness is a decision to extend grace. It is to release someone from their debt and obligation. I read the other day that we are a debt-ridden nation. 
So I'm sure that almost all of you can relate. You probably have, you owe someone something. When someone forgives a loan, it means you no longer need to make payments on that loan. When God forgives you of your sin, it means you no longer need to pay for that sin. It's paid for. You are free because God by his grace has made it possible for you to be free. Lewis Smead says, forgiveness is the miracle of a new beginning. When you forgive someone, it's like you hold your hand out and you say, I cannot excuse what you've done. I cannot understand what you've done. I cannot forget what you've done, but I want to be your friend again. I want to be your wife again. I want to be your husband again. I want to be your father again. Let's start again. When we're ready to forgive, we don't have to understand everything. We don't have to get the story right or straight. We don't have to sew up all of the loose ends in our minds. All we need to do is to begin where we are in our shared pain and determine to walk into the future together again. And what will the future be like as we do that? We really don't know, do we? But it will likely involve more pain, more confessing, and more new beginnings. Not only with others, but also with our God who continues to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I've never seen the movie Tess, but I, I read that in that movie, a young bride risked everything on her wedding night by telling her groom the love of her life about a one-night stand that she had with another man many years before they ever met. And as she confesses to him, his body stiffens and his somber look and his blank stare loudly communicates that he doesn't have the grace to forgive. She gambled on his grace and she lost. And her happily ever after marriage was over. But here's the thing. John promises us here that with God, all risk is removed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. Because of Christ's death on the cross, we can depend on this promise. If we confess, he will forgive, period. 
Jesus holds his hand out to you and he says, I want to be your Lord again. I want to be your Father again. Let's continue to walk together, shall we? And then just one more thing. Notice John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Purify means to cleanse. To cleanse is to remove what doesn't belong there. It's to get rid of the dirt. It's grandma washing the mud off her granddaughter and making her clean again. You know, God knows it all. He sees it all. He feels it all. But he's willing and able not only to forgive us for what we've done, but to cleanse us from us from it. Brian Wilkerson says, while forgiveness releases us from the guilt, cleansing removes our shame. While forgiveness takes care of our past, cleansing makes possible our future. In a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's imaginary table, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Before we do, we're going to watch a little video clip of a story that I believe not only powerfully illustrates and sums up what we've learned today, but will help us prepare to give thanks for the miracle of God's grace, the miracle of his forgiveness, the miracle of his cleansing power. Watch this. My dad has always been a tinkerer. He likes doing things with his hands and figuring out how to fix things. For instance, growing up, I don't remember him ever taking any of our cars to get an oil change. That was just one of those things he seemed to enjoy doing on his own. And over the course of a few of these oil changes, he would slowly fill up this large metal container with the used oil. And this stuff was dirty. I mean, it was filthy. It was basically sludge. And eventually he would take it to get recycled, but in the meantime, it sat along the outside wall of our garage. And my brother and I, we were given strict instructions to keep our distance. And we did. I mean, we absolutely did. Except the time when I didn't. <laughs> On that particular occasion, I was innocently strolling by when I stopped and I looked, and I took a couple steps back, and I remember that I could hear the sound of my own heart beating as I looked down and saw myself reflected in that inky sludge. And I knew exactly what I should not do. And I did it anyway. I plunged both hands in until I was up to my elbows, and it was thick, and slimy and dirty. Basically, it was awesome. <laughs> and then, it wasn't awesome. I suddenly realized how much trouble I was in. 
The oil clung to me even as it was dripping from my fingertips. So I tried to shake it off. And it went everywhere. So I I tried to skim it off and rub it off. And nothing was working. So I ran to the garage and I grabbed a rag that was way too small for the job. And at this point, just total panic. So I snuck back into the house, into the bathroom, where I just began to scrub and scrub and scrub with soap and water. But the only thing that I managed to do was smear the oil all over myself and all over the white porcelain sink, all over the bathroom tile. In trying to clean up my mess, I had made it so much worse. So I did the only thing left to do. Dad? I could hear his footsteps in the living room. And then in the hallway. And as he opened the bathroom door, I burst into tears. I was so ashamed. And then without a word, He took one of my oil-smeared hands and he led me to the kitchen. And from underneath the sink, he pulled out a bottle of this orange-scented, sandy kind of soap. And then he stood there with me at the sink and he helped me wash away the mess that I'd made. I watched as it disappeared down the drain. Sin makes an ungodly mess. It makes a mess of us. It makes a mess of the things and the people that we use to try to clean it up and cover it up. And it simply cannot be gotten rid of unless, unless you're given stronger stuff. And the good news is that when we call out to Jesus for help, he has stronger stuff. So I'm wondering, how many of us can identify with this story? You blew it. You made a mess of things. You've tried to do everything in your human strength to clean up the mess. To make it right somehow. To make it go away. But the guilt, the shame, the regret remains you're tired. You're frustrated. You just feel like giving up. Friend, we have Father. Our Heavenly Father, who's just waiting to hear you say, Dad, 
Dad, will you forgive me? Will you please clean up this mess? John says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, the blood of Jesus is stronger than your sin. The blood of Jesus is stronger than your guilt and the regrets and your shame. Have you confessed your sin to him? Have you put your trust in him? Have you asked him to invade your life and to change you from the inside out to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? If you have, or even if right now you are praying in your spirit to him to do just that, I want you to know that because of what Jesus did, you're worthy to come and sit at his table. Not because you're perfect, but because the one who is, is in you. And he is perfect. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.